0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, uh, former Husker football player Levante David, who's now a linebacker for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he, he was... On a podcast following the, the, the Buccaneers NFC Championship game back in, I believe it was January of uh, 2021, the Buccaneers had just won the NFC Championship game and were Super Bowl bound, okay? And so they are on their way to a shot at a Super Bowl championship. This is, this is every football player's dream, and Levante David, as he was on this podcast, he told a story about the locker room after that NFC football game. Um, and uh, as it as as he told the story, there were men sitting in that locker room who were weeping. They were they were crying because again, this is this is everything that they had hoped for in their career to have a shot at playing in the Super Bowl. And Tom Brady, who is a walking sermon illustration, um, Tom Brady stands up, and I have to clean up the language a little bit. I'll summarize. He said, why are you crying? Why are you crying? We're not done yet. There's still work to be done. And as you may know, the the Buccaneers, after getting the the finger wag from Tom Brady, went on to win that Super Bowl. And so what what Levante David was capturing uh, about that locker room was this this really interesting and and, and almost awkward tension that existed, right? Because on the one hand, the Buccaneers were were just fresh on, on the heels of an NFC championship game victory and, and their hearts were kind of filled with, with gladness and joy and, and, and celebration, right? And so they, they wanted to enjoy that victory and they wanted to kind of soak in that a bit. And, and yet on the other hand, there was still more work to be done. Painful work, grueling work, Work. Why? Because the final victory had not yet been won, and none of them desired to, uh, to go to the Super Bowl and to lose and to get second place. And so there, there was tension in that locker room be, be, between the, the already, that which had already been realized, and the not yet. That which they were looking forward to, that which was still to come. And and we see a very similar tension in our text this morning in Psalm 126. And and perhaps you noticed the tension as Brad was was reading the psalm for us. There's tension between, on the one hand, this deliverance, this restoration that God has given His people, this restoration of, of fortunes, we, we read, uh, that has been experienced by God's people on the one hand, and, and this sobering reality that this restoration, this deliverance, wasn't full and finally realized. And so it was being experienced in a broken world, a, a fallen world. And it was mixed with sweat, sweat, and tears of toil and suffering. And so, different but, but similar. There's tension in our text today between the already and the not yet. And, and the, the big idea that we'll pull out of the text this morning is this. In the midst of all of this tension, that Jesus will one day fill his suffering people with the unhindered joy of a full and final restoration. Jesus will one day fill his suffering people with the unhindered joy of a full and final restoration. One day the tension will be alleviated. And we're going to see that today in our text. Now, uh, since Pastor Todd is on sabbatical, you might not know this, uh, but Pastor Todd is is uh, he's he's very proud of his graphic design skills, and so he often puts those on display for us in his his sermon slides. I am, I'm taking up the mantle while he's, while he's on sabbatical. And I have a nice, um, illustration for you today. Because what, what we have in our text today is we have the psalmist who writes the psalm and he is, he's standing in the present moment. Standing in the present moment. See, there's a guy standing in the present moment. We have, um, I copy, it, copied and pasted that, that, uh, figure myself. Uh, on the timeline, here he is standing in the present moment with the past behind him and the future ahead of him. And our, our psalm is really split into two main sections as he stands in the present. Section number one is verses one through three. And in verses one through three, our psalmist is looking backward to the past Remembering and celebrating the restorative work of God. He's, he's celebrating the already. Verses four through six, then, the second half of our psalm, we see that the, uh, the, the psalmist, again, standing in the present, looks forward. Anticipating the not yet, anticipating the future, full, final, restorative work of God. And so, what we're going to do is we're just going to take each of these sections in turn. And so, let's focus now on, on the looking back and the celebrating of the already. Verse one. Verse one tells us when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. First things first, we don't want to spend a lot of time here, but there is some disagreement among scholars in terms of what the psalmist is referring to here. Some argue that we can't know exactly what restoration the psalmist is is talking about. Um, in terms of the, the historical context. And so therefore, we have to understand and apply the psalm fairly broadly. He's He's writing about some time of restoration for God's people, though we don't know the specific time of God's restoration. Now, there are others who argue that this is a, a post-exilic psalm. What that means is that it is written in reference to the restoration of God's people from their exile in Babylon. And so some would argue, no, there's a, there's a very much, there, there's, a, there, there's a specific historical context that this psalm is, is coming out of. Um, now, I, I, would, I would acknowledge that we don't have a, a ton of detail in our psalm this morning, and, and yet I tend to lean in this latter direction. I, I tend to think that this is a, a post-exilic psalm. Written about the restoration of God's people from captivity in Babylon. Either way, though, this, it, it doesn't impact the meaning of our text or our understanding or the application of the text. And, and, and so on that note, let, let's give ourselves a little bit of a background so that we know the context in which our psalmist is writing. Now, the, the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem at around uh, 586 or 587 B.C. And, and we read about this in the final chapters of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. If you're looking for some reading this week, that might be a place to go. I, I have one little passage here that will give us a good summary from 2 Chronicles. It says that the, they burned the house of God, the Babylonians. They, they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire. And destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile Babylon. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. It was under the Persian Empire that that God's people would be allowed to go back to their land, to go back to Jerusalem to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And so we see for the better part of a decade then, the better part of a decade, the Lord's people were in captivity by the Babylonians. And for that entire time, For these seven decades, that they held on to the promise of the Lord given to them by the prophet Jeremiah. We read about it in uh, Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This was, this was a promise that was 70 years in the distance. As you can imagine, a, a lot transpires over the course of 70 years, in, in, including the passing away of entire generations. And yet, God's people held on to these promises. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. That, that phrase, restore your fortunes, may sound familiar because it's in our psalm this morning. It's in our psalm this morning, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, verse 1, verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in to exile. So the the Lord's People. They had persisted in disobedience to God's word. They had rejected the, the prophets that He had sent to them, warning them and, and, and calling them back to Him, calling them to turn from their sin and their idolatry in repentance. And they were car- carried away into captivity as the Lord warned that they would be, again, for the better part of a century before they would finally be allowed to return to their land by the Persians. And it seemingly, it's, it's following this restoration 70 years later that our psalm was written. And our psalmist is looking back, celebrating this, this incredible work of restoration that the Lord had already accomplished. They had, God's people, they they'd waited for this day. They had prayed for this day. They had longed for this day, knowing that the Lord had promised that it would one day come, and and, and yet in their fallible minds, probably doubting at times whether or not it would finally come. I wonder if there's there's something that that you've longed for over the course of days, weeks, weeks, Months. I wonder if there's something that you've longed for over the course of, of decades, even, in this way. And imagine the feeling that God's people must have experienced when it finally happened. When God's promises were finally realized. When, when they finally came true when his restoration finally had come. This this was one of those surreal moments where where you're you're standing and and you're watching all of the events kind of transpire around you. And and you think to yourself, is this even real? Is this even real? I I have to touch myself. I I must be dreaming. It's like my, my dreams are playing out in front of my very eyes. The psalmist says that, that we were like those who dream. I wonder if you've had an experience like this. For me, my wedding day was, was like this something that I'd longed for and anticipated for, for a long time. And then here I am standing on the stage of a church, and Kaylee is walking down the aisle, and it was surreal. I remember the, the day that I was installed as an elder at Two Pillars Church. I remember the same thing. I remember hands being laid on me. I remember uh, the, 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 the path to that day was, was years long as I felt the Lord calling me to ministry and not knowing how it was going to happen or if it was going to happen. And there I was, and it was surreal. It was like someone pinched me. It feels like I'm dreaming. And what was the response of God's people in that moment as the the psalmist recounts it? He says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. As as you could imagine, they couldn't help themselves. We're told that their mouths were filled with laughter, their tongues with shouts of joy. It was like an, an explosion. Joy was, the, was a natural, almost involuntary response to experiencing the restorative grace and mercy of God. I think it's important here for, for us to note, by the way, that this joy was expressed with their mouths. With their mouths. This, this wasn't, a, a, this wasn't a, a wordless celebration. This wasn't a, a, a wordless, silent joy, but rather their, their, their words were saturated Joy saturated their speech, their mouths, their tongues were were filled with joy as they bore witness to the goodness and the restorative grace of God. One commentator points out that, that this was no subdued celebration. It was a great celebration of freedom from captivity. This word joy is used both for joyful shouts as in a victory in war, and for cries of lamentation. This is one of those words used for experiences on either end of that emotional spectrum. It, it, it often is identified with the sound made by shrieking and crying out as loud as possible. And so, as, the, as, as our psalmist this morning recounts This celebration, we can know this, that it was some celebration. God's people uh, had a party, a joy-filled celebration, and their mouths couldn't be stopped from speaking and bearing witness to the great and mighty deeds of their God. God's people were were marked by joy. They were saturated with joy. Joy. And look, this, this should be true of us as well, shouldn't it? And, and, and look, not, not joy to the exclusion of, of other emotions, like sadness, for example, as, as we'll see later on in this psalm. But look, we too have experienced the restorative grace and mercy of God, haven't we? We've experienced the restoration of our fortunes, the, the restoration that is ours in Christ. We've experienced forgiveness in him. We've experienced redemption in him through his His death and resurrection in our place. And not only that, but we continue to experience his grace and presence in our lives as he faithfully sustains us and guides us and grows us and matures us and provides for us. And so it's not just God's people in the Old Testament who had reason for a joy-filled party and celebration. We too have reason for joy-filled celebration. We too have reason to, to, to allow God's joy and, and, and even a laughter to saturate our words. You see, our, our hearts and mouths should be filled with Joy, this is a natural consequence of all that God has done for us in the personal work of His Son. But as as Eugene Peterson points out carefully, he he says this, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. This is a good point to be made. Not a requirement of Christian discipleship, not a a prerequisite to becoming a disciple. It it is a consequence. It's a consequence of of discipleship. It's not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It's what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. It's a consequence of life in Christ. In other words, joy isn't something that you need to do or manufacture in order to be saved, in order to be welcomed into the fold of God's people. Rather, Precisely because you have been saved, your heart and your mouth and your tongue should be filled with a joy-filled testimony of God's redemptive work in the gospel of Christ. Essentially, what we're talking about here, and essentially what I think God's people were engaging here, uh, in here, in in, in verse 2 of our psalm, is, is like the essence of evangelism. This is the essence of what it means to be heralds of the good news of Jesus. And look, I know that evangelism is an intimidating word. We don't like to talk a lot about evangelism. Uh, at least a lot of us don't because, it's again, it's, it's intimidating. Uh, many of us feel ill-equipped to have spiritual conversations with those who are far from God non-Christians in our lives. We feel overwhelmed by everything that we don't know, which kind of drowns out everything that, that, that we do know. So much theology, so much about the Bible that we don't know, that we don't understand. I mean, like, what if they ask a question that I, that I can't answer, right? What if they ask, what if they ask me a, a stumper and I'm not quite sure what to do and, and and then, on top of all of this, and I, I have my own problems to worry about, you know don't we don't we all have our own our own problems to, to be preoccupied with we're, we're all dealing with difficult circumstances we're, we're all wrestling with our own sin and, and, and the consequences of our sin that play out uh, over the course of, of our daily lives we're dealing with the the pain from wounds and brokenness from our past, seeking to to experience healing. And then there's just the weakness in in our minds and our bodies as we experience life in a broken world and the physical and mental health problems that go along with it. And look, the, the list goes on and on and on. Here's the encouragement I want to give to you, and here's the encouragement that I think Psalm 126 has for us this morning. Despite all of that, despite all of the roadblocks to our, our testimony, our heralding of the good news, despite all of the roadblocks to our evangelism, regardless of your spiritual maturity, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, regardless of your own brokenness, you can do this. You can do this. This isn't a formal gospel presentation with a corresponding diagram that has to be drawn just so. Paired up with flawlessly memorized verses of scripture? This is a a testimony about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus has changed your life. This is a testimony about the work of Jesus and how it's, it's transformed your eternal destiny. You can say along with God's people in this psalm, the Lord has done great things for me. Can I tell you about it? The Lord has done great things for me. Let me tell you about a time of my life when I was walking in sin, drowning in guilt and shame. Let me tell you about the day when I trusted Jesus. He wiped it all away and lifted that burden from my shoulders. Let, let me tell you about His work on the cross for me and for you. Can, can I tell you about the way in which His Spirit has worked in me to change my life? I'm, I'm not perfect yet by any stretch of the imagination, but my my life is radically different. My loves, my desires, they're radically different. The sin that I once loved, I hate. The sin that I once embraced and cling to, I wage war against. The Lord has done great things for me. Let me tell you about it. Look, this is something that you and I, this is something that we can do. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to overflow with joy and give a, a testimony of the mighty deeds of God and the things, the miracles that he's worked and accomplished in your life. And, 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 and we see We see the response of the nations, the onlookers, as they watch all of this unfold and as they listen to the testimony of God's people, as they hear the shouts and joy-filled testimony of God's people giving God the credit and praise for it all, the conclusion of the nations is this. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. This is, this is so significant. As I've heard one pastor say, God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself, a people he reveals his glory to and displays his glory through. You see, we are not termination points for God's glory. God's glory and grace doesn't terminate in me in you in us as his people. We are conduits of his grace in order that it might be seen by other people. Just like we see God's glory being displayed through God's people as he restores their fortunes. And it's put on display for the nations, for the nations to behold. And look, we don't know whether there were mass conversions, but what we do know is that the the nations caught a clear glimpse of of the Lord's glory. They caught a a clear glimpse of his mighty works. They saw his love and faithfulness and grace play out before their very eyes. And they heard the faithful testimony of God's people as well, as, as they agree with the nations, saying the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has done great things for us too. And we should be glad. But that brings us to verse four. Remember, there's tension. And so if you're sitting in the locker room, welling up because you've just won the NFC championship game, know that Tom Brady is on the way, right? See, up to this point, the psalmist has been looking back, remembering this incredible time, almost daydreaming about this this time when the Lord restored his people. What what verse 4 does is it rather abruptly, actually, snaps us back back to the present. It's kind of shaking off the daydream if you will. And verse 4 brings with it, and the verse that, that follow, brings with it a, a, a very different tone. And so, standing in the present, the psalmist is now looking forward and anticipating the not yet. Having looked back and celebrated the already, now he, he looks forward and anticipates the not yet. And it's it's really curious because the psalmist prays to the Lord, asking in this: restore our fortunes, O Lord. That's odd because what were God's people celebrating in the first half of the psalm? The restoration of their fortunes. And so why would the psalmist cry out to the Lord in prayer, asking him to restore their fortunes again? Well, the, the second part of verse 4 is really helpful for us. You see the, the Negev, he says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Well, the Negev was a, a, an extremely dry region in southern Judah. And for much of the year, the streams and the riverbeds there would have been dry, not damp, Not just like muddy, but no standing water. They they would have been bone dry. But but occasionally, particularly during the wet season of winter, rain would come. Uh, One commentator, Willem van Gemmeren, he records that on the rare occasions when during the winter months it rained even as much as one inch, even as much as one inch, The water ran down its streams with great rapidity and often destructive force. I've seen roads and bridges destroyed by the force of these torrential streams. So then what happened between verse 1 and verse 4? Well, the the restoration of God's people wasn't a, a full and final once and for all restoration, was it? And while they had experienced God's restoration and God's blessing, this was followed by another difficult and dry season of of life. This season of restoration was followed by a season of, of more difficult work for God's people. The... The riverbeds had gone dry again. Think about it. It's, it's, it's like the buccaneers sitting in the locker room after the win. God's people had finally returned to their land, to their, to their holy city. Something that they had longed for and prayed about for 70 years. There was celebration. And then their celebration, the celebration of their restoration, gave way to a new reality, didn't it? A new set of challenges and circumstances. There there was a lot of difficult work that needed to be done. The temple, which had been destroyed, would have to be rebuilt. The walls around Jerusalem, which had been torn down, would need to be rebuilt. Crops needed to be planted in a land that had laid desolate for for seven decades. Homes needed to be rebuilt and reestablished. There were new enemies to contend with. It's likely that not all of God's people had returned with them, so they would need to to do the work of of drawing the rest of God's people back with them and, and so on. And so a season of God's blessing gave way to a season of drought and dryness, and a new longing for God's restorative work. And the, and the psalmist prays that the Lord would unleash a flood of blessing upon them once again in order that his people might flourish. And this is what happens when, when dry land gets flooded with water, it, 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 it flourishes. It flourishes with new growth. And so it's from this place in the present, it's, it's from this place of tension that the psalmist now looks forward in anticipation and, and, and also as, as a prophetic assurance of God's future blessing. Verse 5, we're told that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Lots of, lots of images being used today, right? Lots of agricultural type images. A, a, a few observations for us this morning. Uh, sowing. Sowing. And the tears of labor and toil and frustration and suffering are very much linked together. We have this, this, uh, this agricultural picture playing out before us of, of, of sowing, of planting, and of reaping and harvesting. We, we see this elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. And, and here in Psalm 126, we have to observe that tears and sowing are married together. And they're never separated in this passage. And look, this this has been true since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It's been true literally for farmers as they sow and plant and harvest, as they contend with drought and storm and flood, and weeds, and, and, and insects. And it's, it's true, and it's been true for us metaphorically since Genesis 3 as well. Where there is sowing, there will be weeds. Where there is work, there will be frustration. Where there is discipleship, there will be suffering. Where there is gospel proclamation, there will be persecution. Persecution. This has been true since that fateful day in the garden. Secondly, Christians are called to the work, of, to the work and toil of, of, of sowing. This too is unavoidable. Christians are called to the work and toil of sowing, which is connected to the tears, of course, but it, it's, it's unavoidable sowing necessarily precedes reaping doesn't it without sowing there is no harvest we read in, in Ephesians 2:10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them this is just after Paul has explained that we're not saved by our works lest you and I should boast, but we're saved completely apart from our works. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And and a lot of us, we like to commit Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to memory, and we leave off verse 10. But verse 10 tells us that, that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our works don't save us, and yet, because of our new identity in Christ and our, our newfound restoration in Christ, we're called to walk in good works, which He's prepared for us beforehand. And so, there is kingdom work to do. Christians are called to the work and toil of sowing, not a, as a condition for salvation, but as a natural result of salvation in our new identity in Christ. There's kingdom work to be done. There are good works to be walked in. For example, in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Brothers and sisters, we have set apart an obedient living to do. We are called to, to live as God's set apart people, living in obedience to Jesus and his word. For example, Matthew 16, 24 When Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we're called to walk the path of self denial. This is going to be frustrating work, this is going to be difficult work, this is reaping in tears. Or John, uh, Jesus in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you, all, you also are to love one another. We have some loving of one another to do. This is our kingdom work as God's kingdom people. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Remember the conduit of his grace and glory. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have gospel proclamation to do. There is sowing to be done. There there, there is is sowing to be done. There's, by the way, a a connection here um, between what's being said, I I think, in, in Psalm 126 and in the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower illustrates the the frustrating work of sowing the seed of the gospel and God's word. Because we know it isn't always accepted with gladness, is it? At times it's it's rejected or snuffed out. Look at all of this. All of this work, kingdom work, good works prepared beforehand in order that we might walk in them. This is going to be hard work. None of this is easy. It's going to be hard work done through tears, by the sweat of our brow, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The calling of a Christian certainly isn't to a worry-free and carefree life. But, while we sow in tears, while we go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, we do so knowing that one day, one day, brothers and sisters, we will come home will come home with shouts of joy, much like we saw play out in the first half of our psalm. We'll come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves from the harvest with us. You see, that the assurance that the psalmist gives God's people in this psalm is that the streams of the Negeb will once again flow with God's blessing. They will once again flow, leading to growth and growth and to fruit. The the promise and the assurance that the psalmist gives us is that the sowing that we do will one day give way to reaping. The assurance is that the tears will one day give way to unhindered joy, the joy of the harvest. Brothers and sisters, the joy of the harvest, it's coming. And yet, Like the the carefully pasted figure in the slide, we stand in the tension of the present, don't we? We, We've been been saved already by Jesus. If you've trusted in Him, the already is true for you. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad and, and we celebrate this. And yet, while the victory has been won, while While Jesus did say, it is finished on the cross, we have not yet been fully and finally restored. We do not live in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think that Psalm 126 gives us a a really good uh, pattern for what it looks like to navigate the tension. That's what I think... Psalm 126 does for us. See, we we look back as we stand in the tension. We look back, we should look back and celebrate what God has already done. We should celebrate God's faithfulness to us. In part because God's faithfulness to us in the past gives us assurance that he will continue to be faithful to us in the future, doesn't it? And so God's faithfulness to us in the past, in our our looking back and remembering and celebrating, it bolsters us in the midst of the tension of, of, of the present. It reminds us that He has been faithful, therefore He will be faithful. And so our confession as we look back at the restoration of our fortunes in the past in Christ is this. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad Secondly, we continue the tearful work of sowing seeds in a world broken and distorted by sin. This is the pattern of Psalm 126. And we do so knowing that our joy will always be mixed with sweat and blood and tears. And in the midst of of all of that, Our prayer is the psalmist's prayer in verse 4. As we toil, as we bear the seed for sowing, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like like the streams in, in the nego. Let your full and final blessing and restoration flow forever. And lastly, we we look forward in anticipation, seeing our hope in verse 6. We have the assurance of knowing that one day we shall come home with shouts of joy, unhindered by sweat, unhindered by tears, bringing sheaves from a fruitful harvest with us. We get a a picture of what this is going to look like in the, the final chapters of the final book in our Bibles, Revelation. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. We visit these often because we need to be reminded. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember the tears? Remember the tears from the sowing? Verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then we fast forward to the, to the, to the second to last verse of our Bibles, which captures I think the, the ultimate yearning in a verse of the Psalmist in 126, and I think it captures our yearning today as well, and I think it's an appropriate place to, to end. He who testifies, he who testifies to these things says, "Surely I am coming soon." Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. let's pray. Father, we, uh, we live as pilgrims in a broken land. We live in a world stained and, and, and distorted by sin and its effects. And yet, Lord, you've, you've plucked us out of that as your people, and and you have swept us up into your family. You've restored our fortunes. You've made us a people. You've reconciled us to yourself. And so, on the one hand, we've been released from bondage to the sin that that. It saturates the world around us. And, and yet, Lord, sin and its effects, it's, it's, it's still here, it's, it's still present. While we've been saved from the penalty of our sin and from bondage to sin and death, Lord, we still live and, and, and navigate a, a sinful world. And this, Lord, is the world that you call us to labor in. You call us to bear the seeds for sowing. You call us as your workmanship to walk in good works. And Lord, we know that that's frustrating work, at times sorrowful, difficult, tearful work. And so Lord, with with the psalmist, help us to remember our restoration in Christ. Help us to celebrate and to be glad. And Lord, remind us that our hope is that the dry land will be flooded once again. And that the harvest will come. And that one day we will experience a final and full restoration. Untouched, unhindered by the frustrations of this sinful world. And so, Lord, would you sustain us in the midst of the tension as we look back and remember and as we look forward in hopeful anticipation. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.